Turn with me again this week to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. We continue in our series here. We'll read the second half of chapter 2 this morning, and let me just make a, a note about this. So we've been talking a little bit about the voices um, in Lamentations. There's the narrator. There's, uh, we'll come in chapter 3 to the, the corporate voice, the we, us, the second person plural, but there's also this uh, singular voice that breaks in, interrupts the narrator, and speaks for himself. And in chapter 1, that happened uh, right at the halfway point at, at verse 11. And the same thing is true here in chapter 2. Right at verse 11, halfway through this acrostic pro- poem, uh, the, the singular voice, uh, my eyes, Uh, breaks in, interrupts the narrator, and begins speaking again. So we're going to talk a little more about that uh, that voice today. So hear God's uh, holy, infallible word, Lamentations 2, beginning verse 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions. They have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? All your your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who are born healthy? Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in your day, in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not spared. You called as in the day of an appointed feast, my terrors on every side. And there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. I'll end our reading there. Well, where are we in this unusual and largely unknown uh, book uh, in the Old Testament. This book from which we get, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and Your Mercies are New Every Morning, but the rest of which is largely unknown in Western Christianity. 
Again, this book, this collection of five poems, it's essentially Jeremiah's epilogue after having warned about Jerusalem being judged. Uh, it's happened, uh, and now he is uh, lamenting in these poems here, uh, describing the devastation, the grieving. The, uh, there's confession here of the sin that brought this about, uh, the just wrath of God against that sin. That's what we looked at in the first part of chapter 2 last week. We're moving towards uh, the full confession of that sin. We're moving towards repentance and the full hope and confidence in the faithfulness of God that's, that's expressed in, in chapter 3. Uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, and here again in, in verse 11, where we picked up this morning, this, this single speaker, this single man breaks in, speak for himself. Uh, in chapter 1, he broke in and, and took on the plea of the people. He was, he was one of them. Uh, suffering and, and crying out along with them, representing them. Here, uh, he takes some different uh, postures uh, relative to what's going on in Jerusalem, and, and we're going to consider that. Uh, but one thing first that he, he addresses uh, is, is just a further description of their situation and what's led to it, uh, the, the sin that got them there. So if you look at number one on your outline, we'll look at the couple of verses where he, he does that. Uh, first, he describes and confronts some of the persistent sin that led to God judging Jerusalem. So look particularly at verse 14. He says, Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. So here the, the point is that teaching and preaching in Jerusalem um, was false. It was false and foolish. It was misleading, uh, the speaker says here. It wasn't the message of God. It wasn't what was needed. And what was the particular problem, he said, with, with the teaching and preaching in Jerusalem? It wasn't uncovering their iniquity. Right? They, they weren't talking about sin. Uh, they were avoiding that topic. Uh, they never uncovered for you the, your, your deepest problem, your deepest need as sinners, Jerusalem. It's like a parent whose child is you know, dabbling in drugs or something dangerous. And to avoid a, an awkward conversation, the parent doesn't talk about it, doesn't, doesn't warn the child about it. Uh, or, or a doctor who you know, covers up a diagnosis of some deadly disease just to avoid uh, the difficult topic. That, that's a, a deadly uh, and cowardly thing to do. Uh, the, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, it repeatedly uh, brought this to light. It repeatedly warned about this kind of thing. Um, a well-known verse that's actually repeated a couple times in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8, uh, God says through him, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, that is, they haven't, they haven't dug down into the real problem and given real healing, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, saying everything's fine. When it's not fine between them and the Lord. Jeremiah 23 is another example. Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of the prophets, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. They're saying, don't, don't listen to Jeremiah. Uh, nothing bad's going to happen. Just carry on. No worries. Uh, here, the speaker describes the, the teaching as foolish visions. Literally, the, the Hebrew word there is uh, whitewash. 
That's what their teachers and preachers are giving them, whitewash. Um, you know, something you would quickly and cheaply paint over something that's ugly or old to make it look decent for a time. Um, figuratively, the Hebrew word then means something that's frivolous or foolish. It's, it's surface level. Um, Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs, right? Sort of a nice veneer, but, but rot and, and death underneath. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was prime minister of the UK from 1937 to 1940. So right as, as um, World War II was starting, and early in his serving as, as prime minister, uh, Hitler was ramping up aggression in Europe, and people were getting nervous. Europe was getting nervous about this. And so European leaders met with Hitler, including Neville Chamberlain, uh, in Munich in 1938. And they, you know, trying to, trying to stop him. And they, they ceded part of Czechoslovakia to, them. They, they, to him. They said, Hitler, you can have what you've taken so far as long as you promise not to take anything more. And Hitler said, okay, I'm, I'm done. That's, that's good. Right? And so they signed the agreement. This is known as the Munich Agreement, 1938. And Neville Chamberlain came back to London and made a, a short but famous speech to the crowds that were waiting there to hear how this went. Uh, and, and he famously said, I believe it is peace for our time. Right? And he closed his speech by saying, now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. And of course, just months later, Germany had taken all of Czechoslovakia. They'd invaded Poland. And within a year, they were bombing London. Um, Neville Chamberlain, in a sense, whitewashed not the Nazis and Hitler for the English people. Uh, he said, look, he's not that bad. There's nothing to worry about. Let's just carry on, be happy. There, there's nothing painful and, and difficult to deal with here. You know, carry out, go home and sleep, sleep well. Whitewash. Whitewash is still a good metaphor for much of what we still see and hear today that covers over, thinly covers over the root issue of sin as, as the root of our problems as, as mankind. Of course, we see that in the secular realm, maybe most particularly in psychology. There, there are thousands of answers, thousands of things uh, to trace all of your problems to uh, other than sin. We also see it among people who profess the name of Christ. I'll use an example from a number of years ago, someone who's, who's passed now. That, uh, Robert Schuller, at one time, was probably the most famous preacher in the United States, uh, the founder of the Crystal Cathedral in California, uh, the Hour of Power for 40 years on TV. Robert Schuller many times addressed what was wrong with the world, what was wrong with people, what was most needed uh, he, he sort of pioneered the, the answer to that, which is, his answer was self-esteem um, primarily. But Robert Schuller said this as well in his books. He said, there is no greater damage that can be done than to refer to, and he puts this in scare quotes, the lost sinful condition of man. In other words, there is no such thing. Right? That makes people feel bad. You don't talk about sin in the church. Schuler also write, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ that has proven to be more destructive to human personality than the unchristian strategy of trying to make people aware of their, again, scare quotes, lost and sinful condition. It was his project never, uh, never to talk about such a thing. And to varying degrees, this is true all over the church, but also in each of us. 
right? We're, we're drawn in some ways more easily to a, to a feel-good message, to a motivational message, to a self-help message, devoid of the difficult and deadly diagnosis of, of sin. A diagnosis that yet then makes the gospel such, such good news, such great news. Uh, the root of all of our problems, our conflicts, our anger, our anxieties, our depressions, uh, is sin. And so we, like uh, the speaker here in Lamentations 2, is observing we need to be honest about our sin. We need to be willing to talk about it, think about it. Um, sometimes I hear Christians say when, when they're you know, dipping their toe in the topic a little bit, they'll say something like, well, you don't want to dwell too much on sin, or you don't want to think about your, your sin too much. Well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Not in a wallowing, self-deprecating, depressed way, but each of us uh, puts too little thought into how we fall short of the better way that, that our gracious God has laid out for us. That is our basic problem. Right? Every one of us should dwell on sin more to, to, to more fully pursue our Heavenly Father and the life in Christ that he's given to us. Uh, that, that's the main issue that this speaker addresses. He goes on in verse 15, uh, just briefly, uh, I'll note. He says, all who pass along the way, people coming by, clap their hands in derision. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? That's, that's a, an allusion to Psalm 48. Psalm 48 that describes Jerusalem as beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And they're saying, look, look at it now. And, and the point is not that the world, uh, all the nations around or the world today looking at the church sees it as the joy of the earth uh, or, or sees it as so beautiful or understands it that way. Uh, but Jerusalem was to be, the church is to be the joy of the earth in the sense that we hold forth the, the word of God, salvation. Uh, redemption with, with creator God. Uh, and so the speaker is saying that the world is walking by Jerusalem now and seeing its failure, right? Seeing um, its hypocrisy and, and somewhat rightly and fairly deriding her and seeing that her, her religion is, is empty. Uh, it's, it's in ruins. It's been ineffective. So that's what the speaker here uh, observes. Let's look at number two on your outline then. The rest of the verses here that we read are, are the response uh, to this problem of, of this speaker to the people, speaking to the people of Jerusalem. And I, I want first to think a little bit more about this speaker um, and, and who this is. In chapter one, again, we noted the speaker seemed to be one of them. Um, it sounded like it was maybe just someone who was there in Jerusalem, or maybe Jerusalem uh, herself. Um, and, and there's a lot of her and she in this book, and that's, that's Jerusalem. Um, and, and many make that suggestion, especially in chapter 1, that this is, this is Jerusalem personified, speaking for herself. Uh, but in chapter 2, it really becomes impossible to see this speaker as Jerusalem. The speaker starts, as, as we read this morning, speaking to the city. Um, giving them counsel and admonishment and witnessing to them. And, and so the speaker is much more clearly distinguished from them. The speaker, he's identified with them in some way, but he's also definitely distinct from them. 
and speaking to them. Um, across the, these first three chapters, uh, as one writer puts it, this, the singular speaker and Jerusalem, they move from being hard to distinguish to being impossible to equate. Uh, they're, they're, they're different. And chapter 2 gives us even more evidence, and it will crescendo in chapter 3, as we'll see next week, uh, give us more evidence that, that's in this voice that we hear the voice of God. Uh, this is uh, God speaking in some way, especially the voice of God in the person of the God-man who, who suffers for sinners and advocates for them and teaches them and so on. Uh, I, I'm, I'm suggesting it's in this voice, in this book, though it will become clearer next week even more that this is the voice of Jesus uh, in the book of, of Lamentations. And it's very much parallel to the, the singular suffering voice elsewhere in the Old Testament. So in the Psalms, for example. Um, and many, many times the New Testament quotes the Psalms and tells us that we're to see uh, the experience of Jesus and hear the voice of Jesus in that singular voice. Uh, it's very parallel to the suffering servant in Isaiah. This, this singular person, chapter after chapter in Isaiah, who is, sometimes it sounds like it's, it's just collective Israel, but other times it's very clear it's, it's one person and nowhere clearer than Isaiah 53, right? Where it's a single person suffering for and in the place of everyone else. And, and that's very clearly pointing uh, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus as well. Uh, there, there are a couple of hints here, and, and we'll, we'll build on these later today and, and especially next week. But in verse 11, uh, for example, uh, the speaker identifies the city now as, as my people, right in the middle of verse 11, as my people. And that, that, that phrase could be, could be taken in a couple different ways. It could just be identifying with a group, like this is my family, right? Um, not in the sense I own them, but we, you know, we're part of the same family, right? Um, more often that phrase, much more often in the prophets uh, here is, uh, speaks to the ownership of God, of his people. They are my people. Uh, they're his people. He, he's also identifying with them as well. Uh, either way, it reminds us of, of Jesus, who is not ashamed to call them brothers, to call us brothers, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 22, uh, it's maybe even a little clearer. Um, for the end of verse 22, the speaker is lamenting those whom I bore and raised. Even, even clearer sense of ownership over these people. Um, it doesn't make any sense for collective Israel's voice to be speaking about herself in that way, or, or even uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah never speaks about the people of Jerusalem in that way. So in this voice, we have a singular person who represents the people. He identifies with them. He suffers with them, but he is not them. He, he feels ownership over them. He admonishes them. He calls them to repentance. Um, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself, though. So let's. Uh, there, there are four postures of this speaker that I wanted uh, to show you from what we've read this morning that anticipates and represents the ministry of Jesus to us, um, to suffering people, to the suffering people of Jerusalem here. Um, so letter A, the voice of Jesus here in Lamentations, uh, chapter 2 expresses compassion, uh, compassion. I want you to listen to the depth of grief that this, this uh, speaker, the voice, 
uh, expresses here, and here not for himself. Elsewhere in the book, we've already read some of this, we will next week too, uh, it's, it's grieving over his own suffering, but it's he, here it's over that of others. Verse 11 again, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? He goes right to the most gut-wrenching part of this scene in Jerusalem, is starving children, children dying in their parents' arms. And, and we can, you know, we, we prayed for a little boy just earlier, we can wonder how these things can happen and cry out, why, Lord, how can this be? But at the very least, we, we see throughout the scriptures, as here, a God who weeps and grieves who's not unmoved by by tragedy and injustice. In fact, he's far more moved than we could ever be. And and here it's described in the the strongest human terms possible. Verse 11 begins, I can't see because of my tears. Uh, And then it goes on, uh, my heart is poured out uh, on the earth. That's a little euphemistic here in the NAS. It's actually my bile is poured out on the earth. It's, It's picturing vomiting. He's sick over how upsetting the scene is that he's looking at. And then we think of the fact that these, these people brought this on themselves, right? That's been clear already in this book. The speaker has identified multiple ways that they have failed, how they brought this judgment on themselves. But at this point of the story, the speaker is not saying, I told you so, or, or help yourselves, you fools, Right? But the, the voice that will become their savior not only deeply grieves, but it's a, a grieving of compassion for them. It's a compassionate grieving, as we'll see increasingly. And this was already anticipated in Jeremiah chapter 9, when God was anticipating this judgment coming. He said, even when it comes, he would take up himself weeping and wailing for his people uh, when it had to come. And how this reflects the person and the ministry of Jesus for his people, for you. you know, the, the emotions of Jesus in the, in the Gospels is an interesting study. The, the emotion that comes out most often is Jesus' compassion. He had compassion on them, and, and so he such and such. Um, Jesus weeps, as we already read this morning, uh, when his friends suffer grief. Or death, in John chapter 11. Uh, he weeps for Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, uh, because they've turned away from the truth. Uh, this is the ministry of Jesus. It, uh, the ministry of Jesus embodies how he instructs us to relate to each other in our failings. First uh, Thessalonians 5, the men studied this several weeks ago in our Bible study. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Romans 15, verse 1, Jesus embodies, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Uh, Jesus illustrated his whole ministry as as a shepherd pursuing a a sheep that had wandered off. And I would remind you that you and I really don't deserve that, that nice little metaphor of a cute little lamb that just got lost, right? We are willing... Uh, willingly wandering, uh, rebellious sheep, and yet Jesus pursues us over and over in a spirit of compassion. 
Uh, it's also reflected in verse 13. And the speaker asks, to what shall I liken you as I comfort you? This is him who Paul calls the, the God of all comfort. Uh, that in chapter 1, the, the, um, the city was longing for that comfort, as we saw. Secondly, letter B, the, the voice of Jesus here speaks as a witness to them. As a witness to them. Verse 13, how shall I admonish you? How shall I admonish you? That, that's actually something of a tricky translation. The word that's translated admonish here, it has a, a wide possibility of meanings, the Hebrew word. And so you'll find some fairly wide variation uh, in, in different translations. Um, it can mean admonish, warn, protest, testify, witness. Um, the NIV and the ESV have sort of flattened them all out and just said, what can I say for you? Uh, the New King James, how can I console you? But he's, he's pondering, what, what can I say in, in this mess? How can he instruct them? How can he witness to them? And his, his pondering culminates there at the end of the verse, verse 13, with the question, who can heal you? Who can heal you? And heal here, not in the sense of, of physically, outwardly, but, but restore you. Who can reconcile you? Who can fix this mess that you've made? And he points to the extent of the mess, the depth of it. Uh, in verse 13, right before that, your ruin is as vast as the sea. And that's not meant to be a measurable metaphor. The point is it's immeasurable. It's, it's hopeless. It's beyond cure. And this is, this is kind of exactly the same message Jeremiah had been bringing in his, in his book. Jeremiah 30, for example. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable. That's pretty dire diagnosis. Your wound is incurable. Your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause. That is, your, your case is so bad, no lawyer in the world would take it up. Your wound is incurable. There's no one to plead your cause. No healing for your sore. No recovery for you. But what is, what is the point, even there in Jeremiah 30? It comes in verse 17, Jeremiah 30. God says, for I will restore you to health. And I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. That was the point, that they would see there is only one cure, that only God could heal them in that sense. And the same point, I think, is, is here. The speaker here in verse 13 is not really wondering who can heal you, who, who's, who, who can do this, who can fix this. He's prompting them to remember the answer that they already know, that they were hearing over and over, maybe ignoring over and over uh, from Jeremiah and other prophets. Jeremiah 3, God said through him, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithfulness, faithlessness. Uh, Jeremiah 33, Behold, I will bring to you health and healing. I will heal you. I will reveal to you an abundance of peace and truth. And the point here is, again, that, that they, and, and it applies to you as well, you must come to despairing of any comfort, any healing, any hope, uh, in, in your problems, your sin, your brokenness, apart from God as the only healer. So the speaker is prompting them, do, do you now realize there is only one who can heal you? Only one that you can come to. This tragedy, this fatherly chastening was designed to drive them to that, that one answer. And all of, our, all of our struggles and suffering, especially if we're mired in, in sin and its consequences should do the same for us, should cause us to despair of any hope or healing 
uh, anywhere else. And God stands ever compassionate to receive you and to heal. So what is left for these people to do? Thirdly, the voice here offers an invitation. An invitation, letter C. And we find this in verse 18. Look at verse 18. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him. That's the answer. That's the invitation. That they would come to God in this, this dramatic pictures of contrition, of humility. Sincerely coming to God, not holding anything back, not hiding anything, no more hypocrisy. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Go to the only one who can get you out of this mess. Confess your sin. Plead for mercy. And the very invitation implies God's willingness to receive you with open arms. He's like the the father and the prodigal, ready to receive the prodigal, not asking, not requiring anything of him. Nothing but sincere, repentant faith and turning back to him. It prompts a question that's not really addressed here, but will will become more clear in chapter 3. How is it that God heals and restores sinners? How, how can God receive so openly and freely? How does he give life and hope and security and joy to repentant rebels? Because God is just. right? God can't just let cosmic criminals like you and me go. Just say, oh, don't worry about it. Right? Do you realize, I'm sure some of you do, that the worst convicted and incarcerated criminals in the United States are here in Colorado? All of them. <laughs> Um, Terry Nichols, Timothy McVeigh's accomplice in the Oklahoma City bombing. He's here in Colorado. Um, Ramzi Youssef, the 1993 bomber of the World Trade Center. Uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. He actually just died yesterday uh, in prison here in Colorado. Um, Zokar Sarnayev, the Boston Marathon bomber here in Colorado. El Chapo, the most famous brutal drug lord in history here in Colorado. The list goes on and on. Uh, can you imagine a, a district judge coming before the, the, the people of the United States and saying, listen, uh, you know, Terry Nichols and El Chapo came to me the other day and they, they were really sorry for what they've done. You know, Terry said he's sorry for those 168 people he killed in Oklahoma City and they had some tears, they'd written a really nice card and so I let them go, right? Uh, justice doesn't work like that. Right? Not even in our, our human world. And, and even for far lesser offenses, right? Justice, we hope, usually doesn't work like that in our society. Even more so with God. God cannot stand with open arms and receive sinners who, who simply turn back to him freely. Because he says, well, you seem sorry. I, I see some tears. So don't worry about it. You can go. You're forgiven. No, God remains a God of perfect justice by taking the punishment that's deserved for sin on himself. In himself, he became a man. He lived a perfect life that we could not live and then suffered the shame and derision and mockery that our sins deserve. He was counted among sinners. He was brutally condemned and murdered on the cross in the place of those he loves. 
suffering the full judgment of, of his own wrath for sin so that he could welcome sinners uh, who, who pour out their hearts like water before him and come to him. Fourthly, then, this speaker, uh, fourthly and finally, makes intercession. Makes intercession. He, he turns and prays for the people. He turns to God, now, not praying for himself, but on behalf of the people, pointing, as it were, uh, verses 20 through the end here, pointing, as it were, to the most awful grief here in Jerusalem and crying out to God. We don't have time to go through all, all of these verses and, and some uh, awful references that may be rhetorical, extreme eventualities. But, but verse 20 at the beginning is the basic prayer. See, O Lord, and look. See, O Lord, and look. With whom have you dealt thus? These, these are your people, Lord. The speaker prays for them. And there will be more of this in these poems. But this also powerfully anticipates and reflects the ministry of Jesus on behalf of his people. On behalf of you. Romans 8, verse 34. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So we, we lay in our own mess of sin. And yet Paul says... No one can condemn. Jesus is interceding for you. Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And John in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus, having now earned salvation for you, uh, you know him, uh, you are infallibly in Christ, a son or daughter of, of God, uh, seated with him now uh, with a Savior who, who prays for you uh, even now. Uh, so let's go to prayer together to him. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word in this, uh, this book, Lamentations chapter 2, again. These are difficult things for us to wrestle through, but we uh, are grateful for your truth and what it exposes. Uh, we pray that we would uh, not shy away from having our sin exposed uh, so that we would see fully the, the ministry of Jesus to sinners. Uh, we would see uh, so much more how great and gracious it is. Uh, we thank you for his compassion. Uh, we thank you uh, that he is even now interceding for us uh, in heaven. And we pray uh, with thanks uh, in his name. Amen.